Hello and welcome to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Efraim Martinez. I am a principal in search of wisdom, and I have found productivity to be a great tool for success. Today, I have the great and distinguished honor of interviewing Kim Marshall, who was the sixth grade teacher, central office, curric central office curriculum director, and elementary principal in the Boston Public Schools for 32 years. Since 2002, Kim has provided one-on-one -on -one coaching for principals. In addition, Kim consults, speaks, and teaches courses for school leaders with a special focus on teacher supervision and evaluation, time management, the effective use of student assessments, and curriculum unit design. Kim also writes the uber-famous The Marshall Memo, a weekly summary of helpful articles for principals, teachers, superintendents, and other educators. He is the author of a number of articles and books, including Rethinking Teacher Supervision and Evaluation. Kim Marshall, who are you? <laughs> I'm Kim Marshall. And I've been in this business for about 53 years, uh, stumbled into it. I'll talk a little bit about that, uh, but I'm happy to be here. So, so uh, awesome. Uh, can you please uh, walk us through your professional trajectory up to this point? Sure. <laughs> so I, I was born in California. I lived briefly in, in, uh, in the East Coast, and then my father was uh, stationed in Germany. So I spent a couple of years in Germany. Came back to Washington, D.C., then went to a boarding school in England, a really, a really actually very positive experience, which was uh, sort of strange. Uh, there's a whole story behind that. Then came back to college here. And uh, in 1969, graduating from college, uh, I was right in the middle of the Vietnam War. And all of my classmates and I had to make some decisions. Uh, we knew that the war was wrong. Uh, we did not want to uh, go and do immoral things uh, in, in Vietnam on behalf of our country, but we loved our country and wanted to do something. And so what I fell into, and again, this is very much a product of the times, was uh, urban teaching, which at that point was draft deferrable. So you could get a draft deferment if you were a teacher in an urban school. Uh, there was another reason for doing that rather than the Peace Corps going to another country or VISTA going to the American South which was that I was in love with this young woman in Boston and uh, she was finishing up college and I did not want to leave the Boston area. So being a Boston teacher uh, sort of popped up to the top there along with, I would say, idealism, wanting to serve the nation, uh, you know, anti-war uh, sentiment. So idealism, love and war, those things that got me into education. And uh, I did not really intend to stay very long. It was, a, it was sort of a short term thing to avoid the draft and to, do something constructive for the country. But uh, I, after a horrible first year of teaching, in which I've got my butt kicked by a bunch of uh, a very lively uh, sixth graders at the Martin Luther King School in Boston, I got my act together and uh, was at that school for 11 years. And actually for a long time, didn't think I would really leave the classroom. It seemed like a good place to be. I was, you know, got my, got my things. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, about my struggles early on, but I uh, ended up writing curriculum doing other good things, being a leader in the school. Uh, you know, we were in the middle of Boston desegregation in the mid seventies. Uh, our school went from being all African-American to being being uh, voluntarily integrated and as part of a magnet program. Uh, so that's, that's sort of the whole teaching piece. Then I got a, a bee in my bonnet about being a principal. Uh, I read some of the early research on effective school principal is the key, the key person. And I uh, went back to grad school for a year. Uh, then uh, Boston closed a whole bunch of schools as I wasn't going to be a principal and then ended up in the Boston office. Uh, and actually an assistant to the superintendent, as you mentioned, director of, uh, of curriculum for the Boston schools. I wanted to be a And finally persuaded the superintendent to make a principal in 1987 and became of the oldest elementary school in America, the Mather School in Boston, and was there for 15 years. And I then got exhausted, uh, which is a, a burnout problem that a lot of us have to deal with, and then became a consultant, writer, and as you mentioned, a coach or principal. So that's that's the trajectory in brief. Wow. I, I, can you tell us uh, how the, the, the bee stung you in terms of, I want to be from teacher, I want to be a principal? 
Well, you know, I can, I can make a big difference for the sixth graders that I had. I usually had, you know, 25, 26 sixth graders each year. Uh, but I began to see that uh, the way they did in seventh grade was really important and eighth grade, and that maybe my preparation wasn't part of a coherent program in our sixth, seven, and eighth grade school. And that if the school, you see, the, the, the effective school's research uh, tuned me into the not only the impact of the individual teacher, which is tremendous or potentially tremendous, but also of the school. And so what's the school unit? And of course, the person who has the most influence on that is the principal. So I began to see a broader impact as a principal. I still think the principalship is sort of the job in education. Uh, but uh, but that, that's what got me out of the classroom in, into the principal's office. And, and you notice I had it backwards. I was in the central office before I was a principal. Uh, and that was uh, just happenstance. Uh, but I, I did not. Actually, there's one job that I wish I had had maybe I still will have, which is the, the person who is over principals, the person mm. that evaluates principals or the area superintendent or in smaller districts, the, the superintendent, that person can have a tremendous impact by supporting and uh, butt kicking and uh, redirecting and uh, training principals so that they do a better job of their work. I never wanted to be a superintendent because so much of that is political and uh, also rather fraught, uh, pretty high turnover in the principal and the superintendent rank. So I have not wanted to be a superintendent. What did you, uh, what caught your attention when you transitioned from the school to uh, district office curriculum director? Um, any surprises? Well, we had a very uh, wishy-washy curriculum in Boston at that point. And there was a group in the middle of trying to change it uh, under the previous superintendent and it wasn't going very well so i really saw an opening and persuaded the new superintendent uh, bud spillane 1980-81 uh, to put me in charge of doing a more focused job of really sort of grade by grade expectations that was what was missing you know a fourth grade teacher did not have a clear idea of what what their work was and how it fit into the broader k-12 to uh, sort of mission of the school district and i think that's a big problem and, and actually i as a sixth grade teacher was very much guilty of freelancing of kind of doing things would entertain the kids that I was interested in, like the Bermuda triangle and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of activism at that point. Uh, you know, I had posters of Angela Davis and Malcolm X up on my wall. I was just sort of a militant young teacher and, and that's well and good, but, but what about the math uh, that was needed for a sixth grader to be successful in seventh grade? What about the, history that was part of a, a you know an overall kind of k-12 history part what about the science what about the <clears throat> books <clears throat> that they needed to read <clears throat> to be well-educated people so i think you know i saw the need for a coherent k-12 curriculum uh, and we did a good job of that in, in the central office we we really did put together you know uh, curriculum objectives i've got still got them up on the shelf here uh 80 81 uh, up to up to 84 we did a good job in k-12 of clear expectations for each grade level, which is now commonplace. I mean, most principal, most teachers now have a pretty clear idea of what a sixth grader should know by the end of the year, but it was not the case in, in 1980 when I came into the central office, 1981. Wow. When you transitioned as a principal, um, how was that first year? Uh, it was pretty rocky. I almost got fired. <clears throat> Just like I fired in my first year as a teacher. Uh, I, I made a colossal mistake of, of getting provoked by a group of people who did not take, a, shall we say, they did not take a liking to me as somebody who had come from the central office, someone who had gone to Harvard, someone who was, you know, just sort of this pretty young whippersnapper principal who was thought that all children could learn and, and we were going to have a really effective school. And they, there were some pretty hard-bitten cynical people in the school and I called them the gang of six that there was a group of people who uh, who just really declared war on me and, uh, and and they started provoking me and I and I unfortunately took the bait and uh, I can tell you the story if you want but basically please, uh, please. Basically, I know I, I, it's in your book which by the way is read by like a novel so it's lovely but can you tell us that story well, so they, they had a satirical newsletter, anonymous newsletter that they put on people's mailboxes. Of course, this is pre-email and the internet. This is like 80, 1981. And uh, it was really pretty sarcastic, you know, and they, they, they um, ridiculed me as this idealistic idealist with rose-colored glasses and 
you know, and what a fool he is to think that all children can learn. And and interestingly, these these teachers are really <clears throat> they're all, all white females. They, they they all had this sense of themselves as martyrs in a heroic cause. You know, they thought they were and they were working hard and they, and they were not bad teachers. Uh, but they really took a dislike to my idealism and my energy and the way I was trying to run the school. I was putting out a newsletter every day, the Mather memo, and and I was running around the school and getting into classrooms and so forth. And and so anyway, this satirical newsletter went into people's mailboxes and I thought, okay, you know, I'll let that run off my back. And then they did another one. It was even nastier than the first one. And I and I, uh, I looked at the handwriting and I thought I, I could identify the handwriting of the person who had done this. So I called her into my office and said, you know, knock it off. This is not good for her staff morale. And she denied that she had written it and went out and hollered and screamed and other people came in and someone else came in and took responsibility. I said, that, no, what, no, it wasn't you. And, and then uh, my boss gave me the horrible advice of calling in the school police to do a hand analysis and all hell broke loose. You know, the entire staff, including the people who were sympathetic to me, went down to my boss's office and, and, and said, yeah, you got to get rid of this guy. He's, he's not. So they bought an mediator. Uh, we talked it through. I apologized. Uh, and uh, basically, one of the veteran teachers said, okay, let's turn over a, a leaf. Let's give them another chance. Mm -hmm. so they, and that was sort of the turning point, uh, you know, that, that things then began. And then I had a group of people who we got some extra funding. We did a lot of innovative stuff. And then, then it just took off. Well, okay, now let me say it did not, never really took off, but we became a much more effective school. Our test scores went up dramatically. We were one of the highest gaining schools in the in the state uh, we got a lot of recognition i got a lot of recognition so so that, but that was that was a, a real crisis and, and i guess my biggest point, piece of advice from that was rather than accusing people i should have talked to my friends i mean there were a lot of people in the school who were sympathetic who did like what i was doing uh, or you know at least the beginning of it and they would have told me and and it could have been and yet on the third hand uh, probably there was going to be a confrontation with these people uh, it was going to happen because they were so negative about me and, and they were not going to get sweet talked or charmed into it. And and I have to say, there was a lot of mediocre teaching in the school and our student achievement was pretty wretched. I mean, right down at the bottom of the Boston Public Schools. Wow. And, and there was some rationalizing about that. Well, you know, these children come from poverty. It's a very difficult neighborhood. It's a lot of violence and so forth. So we got to really feel sorry for these kids. And, and I was not buying that. So anyway, that's the brief story. Wow, that's that's uh, amazing. Let me ask you: um, uh, in the book, you mentioned about the grievance that you had to deal with. Uh, can you tell us about that story? Right. Well, I I really believed in getting into classrooms and showcasing good practices. Uh, another one of my colleagues in Boston uh, was in another elementary school, and she called it opening classroom doors. So she would go in and she would write up and praise teachers and give them. And I had been trained by John Safier. I knew how to really do good write-ups. And so I, I started going into classrooms and, and uh, you know, being quite positive and, and doing write-ups. And uh, apparently that was a violation of the union contract because uh, if you do a write-up, then you have to go through and fill out the whole checklist, which we had at that point. I didn't want to do that. I didn't, I, I didn't see it as evaluation. I saw it more as more co coaching and appreciation. And so uh, they filed a grievance and I lost. So that's not a good thing to happen. You should not lose a grievance in your first uh, year as a principal. And I was very chagrined about that. And that made me very gun shy for a while. I really, you know, I sort of kind of backed off a little bit, didn't get into his classrooms as much. Now I was busy, of course, you know, doing all kinds of other stuff and, and you know, and figuring out the cafeteria, and, you know, running around and solving discipline problems and, you know, helping out and fixing the Xerox machine and stuff like that, you know, important <laughs> that. But I wasn't, and it took me a few years before I sort of figured out a better approach to uh, coaching teachers. Wow. And, and when did you regain the confidence from backing up to, listen, I'm going to revisit the classrooms and do it perhaps more effectively? Well, there are a couple of things. One was that we brought in Jeff Howard, who's an amazing, I don't know if you've ever seen Jeff Howard in action. He's a, a social African-American social psychologist, actually a, a college classmate of mine at Harvard, Harvard 69, who uh, developed a whole theory, which is very similar to Carol Dweck's, uh, which is a sort of confidence effort development. Think you can work hard, get smart, really. And, and he, uh, I brought him in and uh, he did uh, training with our staff and it was well-received except again, the negative people. 
uh, did not take him. One person in the middle of the day you know, was overheard in the, in, the, in the bathroom, the ladies' room, saying, if I had a gun, I would shoot Jeff Howard dead. But there were strong anti-feelings. But a couple of years later, I brought in uh, uh, Jeff's people for a three-day training on efficacy, which is, again, the psychology of positive achievement. And that really began to take hold. But a number of people, I remember that one of the teachers, Sandy Johnston, had up in her window. So our school was visible from the from uh, the, the harbor in Boston, from the uh, expressway. And uh, you could see the windows up there. And she had in her in her window ZOD, Zone of Development, which was one of Jeff's big things, you know, the, the sweet spot of, of challenge and, and difficulty and rigor and so forth. So that, that really began to take hold. The second thing was that we got some real money and began to do some innovative things. We, we had, uh, we realized the kids needed to get out into the community, get out into the museums and other things in Boston. And so we, we had the money for what we called the Mather Mobile. So it was the Mather School. It was the Mather Mobile, a bus we had every day at our disposal, a school bus. And so every day we were able to schedule a class to go off you know, a couple of classes to go off to, you know, the zoological museum, the aquarium, to other things around Boston, historical sites, you know, the Freedom Trail, and get kids out into the community. And then, of course, you know, had academic follow-up on that. So that, that was good. And then the, the other big thing that happened was that I, after it took, this took a few years, I stumbled upon the idea of, of short, frequent, unannounced classroom visits with face-to-face -face feedback. And the face-to-face -face feedback finessed the issue of write-ups because mm -hmm. I wasn't write-ups. I was just having a conversation and people were a little bit leery of this at first, you know, unannounced visits. So what's up with that? Cause I still had to do the traditional system, but uh, then pretty quickly people uh, liked the idea of my popping in and then catching them later that day or the next day for a brief conversation in which I would talk you know, appreciatively about what they were doing. And then maybe there was sort of one thing that I would suggest, uh, you know, the way we're calling on kids or something of that nature. And, and, and I really got into a rhythm of doing about three of these a day. I had, I had um, you know, 40 teachers and 42 teachers. And if I did three a day, I think by the end of the year, I'd done 10 or 11 per teacher. And, 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 but I didn't write it up, you see. So I didn't fall into the grievance problem. Tremendous amounts of information really built trust. And just there was an ongoing conversation about teaching and learning going on. It was uh, tremendously uh, beneficial for for me and I think for a lot of teachers and and we really began to climb and get better we also put a lot of effort into curriculum coherence because uh, the the uh, MCAS the, the Massachusetts test which for the first time in a long time brought about clear curriculum standards for each grade level this is like 1998 uh, we figured out okay so if that's what the fourth grade is so when then we can figure out so what's fourth grade third grade second grade first grade kindergarten and what's fifth grade and we then really articulated clear curriculum expectations for each grade level. And that was a huge help too. I want to emphasize, uh, going back to what I said earlier, yeah. clear curriculum for each grade level. We're talking about the what. The mm -hmm. what is you know, practice, not the how-to. And I think the how-to, how it's taught, should be very much up to teachers, teacher teams, schools, and so forth. That should not be dictated or, or scripted from above. Uh, what should be scripted, though, is when, when we teach the Holocaust. You know, yeah. when we fractions, you know, when we teach algebra, uh, you know, specifically the rigorous expectations for this, you know, seventh grade uh, social studies class, that, that should be clear. And that should be part of a coherent sequence, you know, from grade kindergarten, pre-kindergarten to 12. But the how-to, that's where you want the creativity. That's where you want the teacher teamwork figuring out, well, afraid, you know, your kids did better than mine. You know, what did you do? You know, how, how can we teach that better? That's, that, that's the, the, the proper benefit. I think between top down and bottom up. When you decide uh, after many years and successes to hang out your gloves, do you remember your last day? Um, and what can you share about that last day? As, as a, a teacher or? A, as a or, principal, as a principal. Well, I didn't think I was hanging up my gloves because I was only what I was, uh, I was not that old, but but I, I, you know, I was not retirement age, so I, you know, couldn't. I was not retiring. I was, I was leaving the principalship, and it was voluntary. I was not kicked out. I, they tried earlier on, but that didn't work out. Uh, so, but uh, just after 15 years, and first of all, I gave people plenty of notice. You know, I, I told people in February, you know, this is my last year. Uh, you know, we'll be leaving. So they started a search, brought in a good person, etc. 
Uh, but I remember, I certainly remember the goodbye party uh, that people threw for me, which was you know, a big deal. A lot of people were there. I still have the photograph of everybody you know, wishing me well. Uh, here's an interesting story from that last party. You know, I, and I gave a speech and you know, my wife was there and she talked and you know, people were sad to see me go, but wished me well. And they knew I would go on to do other stuff. Uh, but, but in that party, there was an interesting moment. Uh, so uh, there was a teacher, a veteran teacher in the school who uh, was terrific. In fact, I got her the Golden Apple Award uh, right early on. By the way, that's one thing I did. I, I, I got more Golden Apple Awards for teachers in Boston. I was really making sure affected people were being recognized. The Boston Public Schools had this big deal, you know, big party, the mayor. So that, that teacher, uh, when I did one of my traditional observations with her very early on, I think it was my second year, uh, I watched her do a, a lesson on uh, estimating the amount of raisins in the little boxes of raisins. It's a sort of classic sixth grade or fifth grade lesson. And, uh, she, you know, she did it well. It was, it was a, you know, it was a real show. And uh, when I called her into my office for the debrief, you know, and, and, and the write-up, I pointed out that she had uh, mixed up the terms mean, median, and mode. And I, so she had made a mistake in the way she was presenting this. And she cried, uh, you know, right there in my office, she wept. And uh, she's you know, older than me, experienced teacher, very good teacher and so forth. And to have this principal, you know, critique her, I mean, it was, it was really bad. So, um, so anyway, you know, 12, 13 years later at the goodbye party. Uh, uh, so uh, do you remember that? And just now, we're talking like 12 years later, 13 years later. And she said, oh, yeah, I remember it. And I said, so what was your takeaway? And she said, never to take a risk. So, so that was another indictment of the traditional teacher evaluation process. You know, big deal, high stakes. You know, it's written out. It's in a record and that kind of stuff. And, and, and she's humiliated and she cries. So, but her takeaway is not, oh, I've got to fix that. Her takeaway was don't take any risks, especially in front of the principal. Uh, so contrast that to a, a mini observation dynamic where, you know, I'm in the classroom a lot. I might see something, you know, but it's a verbal, it's verbal feedback. You know, the teacher fixes it or better still, I'm in the teacher team meeting where the fifth grade uh, you know, team is discussing and somebody else says, yeah, was that, was that mean or was that modian? You know, modian? And they figure it out and they fix it by themselves because they spot it. And so it's, you know, you bring this whole thing down to lesson by lesson, you know, the way it's being taught and, and, and the assessments that are being given, do we have that right and so forth. And that was another one of my big mistakes was I didn't look at teacher's assessments. I wasn't inspecting, for I went into a classroom and they were taking a test. I'd turn around and walk out and come back later. But what I should have done was go in and look over the kids' shoulders at the test and the rigor level, the quality of the questions and so forth, and then talk to the team about the test. And then, oh, yeah, look at the results of the test. So how do they do? And why were so many kids getting number 12 wrong? What was up with that? And, and get, a, get teachers having that kind of discussion. That's the real work, uh, you know, always looking at student results. I see. When you, uh, in your book, one of the uh, big achievements is... Uh, getting an agreement with uh, the union that instead of doing those long uh, evaluations to use the supervision and the conversations instead. Can you mm -hmm. tell us about that success? Well, I think it happened gradually. You know, as I said, initially people were suspicious of the idea of these short, frequent, unannounced classroom visits. But the face-to-face but -face conversation is, is the key thing there because that's when the teacher can say, you know, well, you know, I'm having a bad day or this student is particularly upset because his father was, you know, was just, uh, you know, beaten by the police or something. And, uh, you know, my mother has cancer or something is going on or, you know, the, the machine broke down that I was using or something and not excuses, but reasons. Or I'm particularly excited about this. Can you come back and, and see this? So fairly early on, as I started this, uh, I started the many observations. I, I won the trust of teachers that I wasn't out to get them, that it wasn't going to be a gotcha that I was really interested and curious in what was going on in their classrooms. And, uh, and so that built the base so that when we uh, basically took a, a vote, you know, a staff vote, uh, because in Boston, there was a thing, uh, New York City has something called SBO, school-based option. Uh, I think Chicago uh, may or may not have something like that. I, you can tell me. Uh, but here with, with a faculty vote, uh, then you're able to make a, a slight change to the, to the contract. 
And so people approved this. They said, okay, you know, Kim wants to do this. That's fine. You know, we still get ridden up at the end of the year, but it's, it's putting together a lot of, you know, 10 or 11 of these classroom visits. And so, you know, we think he has an accurate picture. Maybe he saw a couple of bad moments, but he saw overall what was going on. And I thought that was fair. I had made a couple of changes to that since I left the principalship. Uh, you know, the things I recommend and, and do present, write about. But, but that was how we, you know, was, you know, to your question, it really was winning the trust of teachers so that they were no longer suspicious or freaking out when I walked into their classroom. Beautiful. And at some point, that mother memo became the Marshall memo. Can you, can you share with us uh, the evolution and the idea of doing this? The Mather memo was, was really a staff newsletter. I mean, it, it, so it's a little different than the Marshall memo, although th there were some things I was trying to do. So the, the Mather memo was an attempt, and, and one of my mentors, Roland Barth, had always told me, you know, when you have a staff meeting, don't be giving announcements. You know, don't be reading circulars. You know, be talking about teaching and learning. And the way to do that is to get all the administrative stuff out of the way in a written memo. And remember, this is pre-internet, pre so it's a paper paper memo put in people's mailboxes. And uh, and I really, you know, I, I made that into an informative, uh, funny, there were always cartoons or, you know, jokes or contests, or we had a cor corporate partner who got us tickets to the Red Sox, you know, regular sort of corporate seats. And so I would say, you know, there are four, four tickets to the Red Sox game or a Celtics game. And just let me know if you're interested. So by the end of the Day, I would have like 40 pieces of paper in my mailbox and we would go through a drawing, you know, for who wanted to take their family to the Red Sox or whatever. So things like that. Birthdays, student birthdays, you know, so anytime a student had a birthday, which is almost every day, you know, they would be wished happy birthday by other people, by lunch monitors, by, you know, by their math, you know, by their phys ed teacher, et cetera. So it was, it was a good, a lively, and people read it, you know, because, you know, maybe there were going to be Red Sox tickets or maybe there was going to be a really funny cartoon in the back. Uh, I also, in the, in the Mather memo, also would share uh, brief, um, you know, uh, articles. And so, for example, in those days, Al Shanker was the president of the, of the American Federation of Teachers, a union leader. And he had a wonderful column almost every Sunday of the New York Times, you know, brief column. And I would put that on the back of the Mather memo <clears throat> when it was pertinent to our work, which it often was or a brief research summary or an article of some kind, sometimes a funny article. And that was really the germ of the Marshall Memo was you know, that I would share sort of professional stuff with people. Uh, I also led, did other things with teachers, like I subscribed to magazines, you know, the reading teacher, you know, Fidel the Kappa and stuff like that. And I would put our, we had a teacher, teacher resource center and I would put out the copies of that or I would Xerox articles. And looking back on it, a lot of those were too long uh, and mm. people were, you know, I, I was well-intentioned and I was still wanted to put them out there. And so really the germ of the Marshall Memo was, which I started the year after I left the principalship in 2003, uh, was let me write a summary of the best articles because the articles are too long. I mean, even a four or five page article in Fight All the Capitan is kind of on the long side or educational leadership. So if I could do a summary, a brief summary of the article, something that could be read in five minutes, that would be good. And that's the basic idea of the Marshall Memo was, was for me to read widely, pick the best articles and then write short summaries so that, you know, so that a, a principal or a teacher or a teacher leader, instructional coach, superintendent, you know, could read them and get the basic idea. You know, like this week in the Marshall Memo, there's a wonderful article by Adam Grant about email, about, how you know, don't let emails rule your life. You know, don't feel like when you get an email, you have to apologize if you don't immediately respond to it. No, email is asynchronous. You know, you can wait 24 hours or even longer. You know, you don't have to. It's not like a ringing telephone. You know, hello. You know, you got to pick it up immediately. And Adam Grant, who's a professor at the Wharton School in, in, at the University of Pennsylvania, wrote this wonderful article. Uh, and I did a summary of it under a page. You know, so his article is quite a bit longer. And then, you know, and some some articles I do are like 40 pages long. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I know I'm not the only one uh, who looks forward to the Marshall Memo to see what's in, what is the topic of discussion, and often bringing those to grade-level meetings and uh, to the conversation. Thank you, Kim. Kim, if, like in Back to the Future, if you could go back in time to any of the positions you held in the past, what will the Kim of today tell the Kim of back then? Huh. I think with teaching, it would be, 
uh, listen to the advice of people about classroom management. Because as I mentioned, I had a horrible first year teaching, you know, mostly discipline problems. And uh, I, I just, I, I, I was sort of scornful of, of some of the classroom management things that I've been told, uh, like set up routines, you know, like have a regular routine so that you don't have to nag and threaten and punish people about it. And, uh, you know, learn how to do the look. You know, I, I don't know if you ever learned how to do the look, you know, the look. The, look, the teacher look. <laughs> yeah, the look. I, I, I never learned how to do that. That would have solved a lot of problems. Uh, I was very naive. I thought that being a, a good person and having an interesting curriculum would be enough uh, to have the kids do what I told them to do. Well, guess what? <laughs> they didn't. They, they, they had seen this movie before. They, uh, the naive teacher, the nice guy who doesn't know how to handle a classroom. So I, I would, if I could time travel back, I would give myself, uh, you know, I would take the Fred Jones course or some course on classroom management that would be, that would help me, uh, you know, not be a martinet, not be, you know, a, a mean teacher, but know how to handle kids. So for my teaching, that was, that was, a, and I, I also would, well, of course it didn't exist in, in uh, 1969, 1970, but having a clear curriculum through the grade so that I knew what I could hand off to the seventh grade teachers, you know, really, I mean, some of your best, most important customers are the next grade levels teachers. So the seventh grade teachers, they wanted stuff. They wanted my kids to be able to do certain things in math, to know certain things in social studies, to, you know, so it has to be part of a, but we didn't have it at that point. So I was very much on my own, uh, too much involved in entertaining kids, which by the way, was part of classroom management. If they're entertained, you know, <laughs> they'll, they'll behave better. So, so all of that was kind of, uh, you know, I mean, I think I did a good job, but, but, but I, but Needed, I needed to know a lot of things. As a principal, if I could time travel back to the principalship, thinking of the crisis that I described, I, I would certainly uh, you know, know better than to confront people and accuse people without the right evidence. Although I thought I did. I thought I had the handwriting. You know, I, I thought I had them dead to rights, uh, but I didn't. And uh, it caused a huge ruckus. And I'm amazed that my boss didn't fire me. I, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine the area superintendent has like, 40 angry teachers from the matter school in his office saying wow. this crazy guy. That's not, that's not good. Yeah. So, uh, you know, instead of confronting and accusing, then doing a little intelligence work, you know, out on the yeah. playground, side, uh, what's up with these, you know, these memos that's going on. And she said, Oh yeah, those people are, you know, I couldn't ignore it. It was, it was a cultural issue. You know, I couldn't ignore it, but I would have dealt with it somewhat differently. And I think also as a principal, uh, starting earlier with the mini observations because I wasted a lot of time and energy, burned the midnight oil, neglected my own children, you know, uh, my personal children, you know, writing up these long write-ups, which are not productive. And, you know, any any principal has to do that. Uh, you know, and, and most people know, most central office people know, the people in Chicago, they know that this stuff is is not productive. Uh, and, you know, and I'm, I'm still trying to persuade them to, uh, to change their system. That, that's a good uh, thing. Uh, what advice do you give uh, the principals that you coach or advise in terms of uh, making sure they don't sacrifice, for example, their own children for, for the sake of the job? I remember sitting with Claudia Aguirre, who was one of the principals in New York City that I was coaching, a middle school principal, Upper West Side, dual language middle school in, in New York City public school. And uh, I would visit her regularly and uh, and you know, we talk, we visit classrooms, we talk strategy and so forth and, and data. And at five o'clock, you know, she would look at her watch and say, got to go. And she had two young children and she left. Uh, so, so that you know, was a firm deadline with her. She was going to leave at five o'clock. That was it. And what that did, of course, was it, it made her get stuff done more efficiently in the rest of the day because she knew she had that deadline. Whereas if she thought she could stay until seven or eight or nine o'clock at night or work, you know, through the evening, then she wouldn't do certain things more efficiently during the day. So clear limits, clear boundaries uh, is number one. Uh, and, you know, cause there's an infinite number, amount of work. I mean, you know, you know, being a, being a principal is just, you could work the whole time, you know, you can work, yeah. you can sleep, you know, everything. So that's one thing. I, so, I, so I, I just gave this workshop yesterday actually. And, See if I can remember the four things that you have to take care of. So, so one thing is, is health. So, so you got to, and that's sleep, nutrition, breakfast, exercise, you know, uh, and so forth. The second is, is spiritual. So whether that's meditation 
or whether it's re religion or you know, whatever it is that, that fulfills that need in, in your, in your psyche. Uh, another one is, is emotions. Uh, you know, so, th so that is mostly relationship, this emotional uh, well-being. And each one of these is like a tank that you have to, you have to top up your tank in each one. So the emotional thing is relationships, of course, within the school, uh, but principalship is pretty lonely sometimes. So outside of school, so that's love relationships, friendships, and so forth, and keeping those up. And the last one is, is mental, uh, is intellectual, and that's where just you know, you know, maybe getting out of a rut, uh, you know, reading stuff. You, you, you I think you're going to ask me about my favorite books. Uh, so yes. you know, a regular basis, uh, and for a very busy principal, the Marshall Memo helps because you know, in in 20 minutes you. Can, you can get on top and, or, or it even might be less because you might not be interested in, in a particular article. So you skip over that one, but so keeping, keeping your mind alive in terms of what are the new ideas? What are, or what are some old ideas that we are rediscovering that we're thinking some more about? I mean, for example, right now, the U S is in the middle of this huge debate about literacy. Uh, you know, the so-called science of reading debate, which is a very important debate phonics, you know, and versus whole language versus, you know, love of reading versus knowledge, core knowledge and so forth. And that's, you know, being on top of that debate for an elementary principle is a very important thing because you, you're going to have parents coming into your, into your office. I listen to this podcast. I listen to sell the story. You know, we're doing this all wrong. My kids not learning how to read and you have to know what, what the issues are there. So you don't go down the rabbit hole so that you can, and also you can make sure your teachers are doing the right thing. Cause the big, the big concern is that kids are not being taught how to sound words out. They're being asked to guess the word based upon the, the pictures on the page rather than knowing how to sound a word out, which is really important. Uh, so anyway, that's just, you know, that's one of the things that you should know about, uh, you know, to, to, you know, as, as you, as you do, act as a principal or a teacher, teacher and so forth. Absolutely. Especially uh, I see the principals as a, a public intellectual because you have to be informed to guide your teachers, but also the families that come with different interests and one more has to be aware. Thank you for that, Kim. So talking about books, if you have to gift to a loved one, two books, one fiction, one nonfiction, what would those books be? So the best fiction book I've read in years is A Gentleman in Moscow. I, I don't know if you've read this book. It is, it is a fictional book about a Russian aristocrat who is, who is uh, locked up in a hotel uh, for the rest of his life. It's in 1921, uh, I think. And because he's a, an aristocrat, the communists really don't like this guy and, and they're gonna execute him, but they find out he read a, 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 wrote a, a sort of revolutionary poem, supposedly as a young man. So instead of executing him, they confine him to a luxury hotel in downtown Moscow for the rest of his life. And the book follows through, you know, like 50 years as he's a prisoner in this in this hotel it's a wonderful book of fiction it is and of course a lot of it is true for example in the middle of this in the 1930s you hear about the ukrainian uh famine you know where, where stalin starved millions of people in ukraine that's one of the one of the legacies of today's ukrainian situation is people remember that people remember uh, the famine so the gentleman in moscow highly recommended amor tolls is, is the author uh, in nonfiction, uh, there are a lot of things that excited me. Um, for example, 15,000 Hours was a British book that was part of my epiphany the year I was at grad school uh, about affected schools. Uh, Ron Evans, uh, who I studied with, uh, was one of the gurus, never wrote a book. Uh, but the, the British uh, authors, 15,000 Hours, uh, had a wonderful study of what it is that makes some schools more effective than others with the same population of children. What are these factors? And I will mention one other book, which I'm a huge fan of, which is Teach Like a Champion. Uh, but uh, Teach Like a Champion, the third edition, the third edition is significantly better than the first two and deals very well with the issue of race, which Doug Lamov and other charter school people have really been uh, sort of getting a hard time about in the last few years. So uh, very good on that, but mostly 63 specific teaching techniques that put kids on the path to college. And I, I love the book and I love the videos or a hundred videos with the book that you can watch these teachers in action. And I, I like that approach, not academic research, but go into classrooms, find the teachers who are getting great results and then watch very carefully what they're doing and, and really sort of deconstruct it. And, and that book is tremendously helpful. And, and are, you a, are you a fan of uh, Teach Like a Champion? I have not read it, but now it's going to be in my book because I'm always talking about uh, techniques and strategies. And now that I know there's 63 there, that's my next yeah. book. 
Yes, sir. You'll you'll you will enjoy it. Make sure to get the third edition, 3.0. The third edition. Beautiful. Thank you for that advice. Let's take a very quick uh, moment to praise Teach Better Community. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the episode. So, uh, Kim, who is or who are your biggest influences? I think that Ron Edmonds, who I mentioned a moment ago, is one of the big ones. Uh, so when I was a sixth grade teacher in uh, 1978, uh, you know, I've was, I was, been there for almost 10 years. Uh, I read a New York Times article about Ron Evans's research. He was a Harvard professor, African-American, who did research on effective schools. And he had five factors that made some schools much more effective than others. And of course, the first one was principal as an instructional leader. And I said, huh, I never really thought about being a principal. I had a negative view of principals, you know, <laughs> my principal in their office all the time, you know, gave me a hard time when, you know, when I tried things and so forth. So, so, uh, so then I took a year off, as I mentioned, 8081 back at the, at the Harvard Ed School, and Ron Evans was there. And I studied with him. I was in a seminar with him. He had, was an absolute inspiration to me in terms of specifically what it looks like. You know, what are these five factors that make an effective school? And that was really my, my whole platform when I started as a principal was, you know, the Ron Edmonds sort of effectiveness factors. It drove some people crazy, as I mentioned. There was not a positive reception among some people, especially the, you know, the real sort of uh, veteran people in the school. But Ron was a huge, a huge influence on me. Another one was Roland Barth, uh, who's you know, written a number of books died quite recently. Uh, and he, he was a mentor of mine. He taught me something very interesting. I, I met him when he was a principal uh, in Massachusetts. He pushed his desk against the wall, and, uh, and and having the desk against the wall rather than you know sitting behind the desk like you know like the president of the United States had a very a very set a whole different tone in the office. And he was big on getting into classrooms. He was also big on giving teachers the budget, you know, the instructional materials budget, so they could decide what they were going to spend their money on. And Roland's a wonderful, a wise man. And one of the nice things about the Marshall Memo is when someone like that uh, dies, as he did uh, a couple of years ago, I went through and found all the great quotes from Roland Barth that had, had a big chunk of the Marshall Memo devoted his quotes, uh, some of his wonderful quotes. Wow. Can you tell me more about uh, the pushing the desk towards the wall? That sounds very interesting. Well, so if you have a desk, you know, in the middle of the room, you know, or, or you know, sort of, uh, and you sit behind it, then that's a very sort of authoritarian type of posture. You know, people come in, you know, there's a desk between the two of you. And as I said, it's sort of like, you know, the presidential kind of look. Uh, and, and by turning the desk around and pushing it against the wall, uh, then, then you have a small conference table, you know, a small, I, I had a small round table in my office. It could fit, you know, three or four, four, four or five people around it, and then you know I just turn my my chair around and and you know and wheel up to the table, and then we'd have a meeting. Entirely different feel to to an office, uh, you know, when you have that kind of dynamic. I, I I don't know what your setup is in your office, but but it's it is like the the opposite, right? It, uh, this I sit like the president, but now that you say that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, just push the desk to the wall. I don't know if you watched Abbott Elementary, the the very popular TV program about about the school in Philadelphia. It's a, uh, in fact, the the uh, the lead uh, actress is I think won some kind of award for this. It's a very popular program. Anyway, the principal in that school sits behind the desk, and I'm using a photograph of that at my workshops. You know, here's how here's how it looks. You know, in the traditional principal's office, which is you know the way a lot of people have done it. So, so just wow. a, that's a change I have to do on Monday. Thank you so much, Kim. Um, so, uh, Kim, all everybody at some point um, doubts themselves or think they're not good enough or smart enough, etc. Uh, psychologists call this imposter syndrome. How do you address this, and what advice do you have? Well, I think the big thing where I felt, uh, you know, that, that I wasn't worthy. I guess that's the that's the thing. You know, like. Uh, did my college make a make an admissions mistake in letting me in, you know, and so forth? I always looked, and I, I'm 75 years old now. I don't look it now, but I always looked very young for my age. You know, when I was in college, I looked like about 12 years old. 
you know, I was a late bloomer and I just looked, you know, really, really young. And I looked young as a teacher, you know, I looked young as a principal and that sort of worked against me. I had to prove myself. I had to prove that I was a serious person and maybe, you know, that made me go overboard in, in some ways. But the fact of the matter is I, I am a, a pretty privileged white male. You know, I, I have a lot of things which I've gotten in touch with, you know, and a lot of the thinking now is, you know, is in what way, in what ways did I have, I had tremendous advantages, uh, you know, in, in, in my life in terms of, you know, private school education, going to school at British boarding school, you know, going to Harvard, et cetera. Uh, and so, so I, I haven't had to deal with imposter syndrome perhaps as much as a lot of other people have. I had roommates in college who said, who thought they were a, an admissions mistake. They just, they, I've talked to them at our reunions, at our Harvard reunions. They say, I can't believe they let me in. You know, it must've been a mistake, <laughs> which is which is so unfortunate. Uh, of course, part of where I got in was, was uh, my father went there. My grandfather went there. So I had the, the legacy, which is now being contested. Harvard is getting a lot of pressure now. Don't give an advantage to, you know, so, you know, okay, okay. Now I'm thinking I have a po imposter syndrome because, because I didn't really deserve to get into Harvard. I, you know, it's because I was a legacy. Okay. So I, I have to really ponder that one, but it's too Beautiful. late. Beautiful. Yeah. So it's never too late. I appreciate that. So uh, let's talk a little bit about productivity. As you know, productivity is something that means different things for different people. Uh, when you look back at your principal years, what was what was what were the glows of your or, or the way you organize yourself, and what were some of the growths? I uh, I, I was sitting in a boring meeting once, a superintendent's meeting or something. And by the way, I was famous for falling asleep in the superintendent's meetings. What? <laughs> Sleep, and if I wasn't stimulated, you know, I would doze off. But uh, I, um, I, I figured out in this meeting that I worked about 78 hours a week. Now that's way too much. Uh, that is, you know, I worked, I worked, you know, like one of the questions I ask in my time management workshops is, do you take one full day of the weekend completely off, like where you do no work whatsoever? And I did not take my own advice. I, I worked, you know, very hard, pr pretty much through the weekend. You know, I got up very early in the morning, like five o'clock, you know, in the morning, you know, wrote the, the Mather memo. And and I think that really took its toll because one of the things that, that happens when you don't get enough sleep is you lose your sense of humor. And your sense of, by the way, that might have helped in my crisis with the with the anti-memos. You know, if I, if I just found a funny way to deal with, you know, maybe I would do an anti-anti-memo or something like that. But I, <laughs> so I'm an example of somebody who worked too many hours And it took its toll, and that's why I got exhausted. You know, I, I, you know after after well, 15 years as a principal is not bad, but so so setting limits, I would say. Uh, but I was, uh, you know, so as, a, as the Marshall Memo, I have some productivity advice there. So I've kept this now for coming up, uh, coming up on 20 years. So every you know, 50 issues a year, every week with a couple of weeks off in the summer or Christmas. And one of the secrets to that has been, as the magazines. You know, I subscribed to 60 magazines, you know, and, and newspapers and, and hard copy, most of it. And as they come in, I put them aside. They're right over here and they pile up. I just got three magazines today. I got Teachers College Record. I got uh, Social Studies and the Young Thing. I got Communique. So I don't look at them when they come in. And the online stuff that comes in, like ASCD Smart Brief and stuff or Gadfly or something, I'll quickly print out the articles but won't look at them. All the reading for the Marshall Memo takes place on Sunday. I sit down. And, you know, and spend about eight hours in a comfortable chair going through about 150 articles quickly and, and uh, folding over the, the eight or nine that I think are promising. And then on Monday, I do all the writing. And then the rest of the week, I'm out there in schools. I'm coaching principals. I'm giving workshops in person or online. And I, you know, I'm out in the real world seeing what principals are really going through. And by the way, as you know, this has been a really, really tough year. Uh, for teachers and principals, very tough here. Uh, and uh, so that's, you know, I guess the, the moral there is is compress the work. And it's got, the same goes for email. You know, like like not a principal not trying to keep up with email during the day. That's that, that's going to have you trapped in your office. What I recommend, and people are startled when they, when they hear this, is have an out-of-office message during the school day that mm. says that's something like, uh, thank you for emailing me. Uh, if it is urgent call this number, my cell phone number, or my assistant. But if it's not urgent, uh, I will get back to you at 3.30 this afternoon because I am in classrooms 
in the cafeteria in teacher meetings. I'm doing the, the work that I'm supposed to be doing now. And, uh, you know, of course, you have to get permission from your superintendent to do this. But most superintendents that I've talked to are head of schools. They say immediately, what a great idea, because I don't want my principal sitting at their desk at 10 o'clock in the morning answering emails. And, and the other thing about that is in terms of time management, it really discourages people from emailing you in the middle of the day. <laughs> it makes them think about, can I get this problem solved some other way? Because he's not going to get back to me right away. So I, I got to deal with this. And, you know, you need a first responder. You need, of course, I mean, people need to be able to reach us at any time now. You know, it's, you know, there's the school shootings and stuff like that. You know, you have to be able to reach the principal in the bathroom. I mean, it's, you know, this, uh, you know, whenever or wherever. Uh, but setting limits on that, I think, is really a, an important thing in terms of productivity, because then you can do the really productive work. Uh, in your book, you mention um, that you took you didn't take notes because you did, you didn't want to interfere with the union issue and um i i asked you this question in uh in person uh before but how does your vision of that have evolved with time um how should principals take notes or not during their supervision obser observations well you're remembering correctly that that i I, I was burned in this losing this grievance. And so that made me very gun shy about taking notes. And so I didn't, I would jot a couple of things after I left the classroom. I think that was an overreaction. Uh, you know, I, I don't think most teachers would not have minded if I, if I jotted a few notes, but what they would have minded is sitting with a laptop at the back of the room, you know, just type, 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 type everything that's going on. That makes people nervous. And also they don't really know, if you're writing about them or if you're chopping or writing emails or filling out reports or whatever. So I, my position now is that you should take uh, some brief, very brief notes, just like with a little pad of paper or something, but not extensive. This whole idea of scripting, I think is unproductive. I mean, unless you're, you know, um, trying to fire a teacher and you need to really get very, very detailed notes and, and there you shift gears, you shift gears from any observations to full lesson observations. But, you know, 99% of teachers, you're not trying to fire them. You're trying to, you know, you're trying to appreciate what they're doing and give them praise and, and, and feedback and, and then coach on, you know, with something specific. So, so my position now is, is taking a little notepad or a card or something and, and write down the something that you will probably forget. Like a kid says something really funny or something really wise, you know, write it down right, word for word while, while it's still fresh in your mind because you, you will forget that later. And then one more thing is there are teachers who are sensitive about that. And like when I do a poll, I, I always use polling devices when I do presentations, anonymous polling. And when I ask what people's personal preference is for note-taking, there always are one or two people who say, don't take any notes. Like it makes them nervous. It freaks them out. You know, what are you writing down? Is this going in my record? Is this going to be in your Facebook page? Whatever. And so I would respect those people but I think they would get over it pretty quickly because if you're going to have a conversation, if it's all very low key, you know, so low tech is my big thing. Don't bring laptops. Don't bring tablets. You know, just just bring yourself and, and above all, pay attention. You know, be present. Look over kids' shoulders. Look at the work that they're doing. Chat with kids. You know, when the teacher's not uh, addressing the class, chat with kids. What are you learning today? And, and that way you can really smell the roses in a classroom and then jot quick notes and then as soon as possible afterward have a face-to-face -face conversation where you ask open-ended questions like uh did you get your intended learning results uh, what happened after i left that looked really interesting or this kid seemed excited what's going on with that or 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 um you know that's you know that's you know and, and then you shift gears and get into get into maybe there's a critical point like you're only calling on the boys or you're only calling on the kids who raise their hands that sort of thing Beautiful. Thank you. And uh, Kim, when the curtains close and uh, you take out the cape of uh, consultant, principal coach, what do you do for fun? <laughs> Great question. So I am I am really interested in what's going on in the world. And I read two newspapers. I read the New York Times, but uh, paper edition of the New York Times, because I don't want to be on a device all day long. You know, it's, I mean, enough with the computers. And And so the paper, and the New York Times is doing a superb job of covering the news. I'm fascinated with what's going on in Ukraine. I'm fascinated with the politics. I'm fascinated with psychology, uh, you know, new insights in science and so forth. And I read the paper quite thoroughly. It takes me an hour and a half to read the New York Times. 
And just yesterday, I was on a plane and caught up on two days of papers. Uh, I love to read books. I'm reading a book now about the Panama Canal that's absolutely fascinating, David McCulloch's book on the path between the seas. Uh, I love being with my wife. Uh, we've been married for uh, 50 years. Uh, it's on our 50th anniversary. We, we, we spend uh, wonderful time together. And uh, my, my grandchildren, I have two grandchildren, two children, both of whom are teachers. So the whole people, the people part of it, is is central to my life. Uh, I believe very passionately in exercise, so I have three outs every week. Uh, you know, a combination of aerobic and, and strength. I uh, keep myself in shape because I want to. I want to keep my marbles as long as possible. Keep healthy. So I think that's that's pretty much everything. Yeah, I like to yeah. fix things. As I was that as as the principal, I still like to fix things. Can you tell me? Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your exercise routine, which is a a part that many of us ignore. Yeah. Well, the thing is, you, you don't have to run marathons uh, to be in shape. You know, I trained for a marathon once and it just about killed me. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not built for marathons. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, I, it, you know, the, 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 the wisdom that I go with is 20 minutes of aerobic exercise three days a week. And aerobics can be anything. I mean, it can be running, it can be jogging, it can be fast walking, it can be swimming it can be bicycling it's you know anything that gets your heart beating you know squash tennis whatever pickleball which i haven't played yet but i have some friends who love pickleball so so the aerobics is important in three days a week i mean some people would say five but three days a week is you know so i do like tuesday thursday sunday you know about the aerobics but at, if you're over 40 years old then you have to start worrying about muscles uh, losing muscle mass and tone and so forth and so that's when you really start to need the strength and i started that fairly recently got a personal trainer she taught my wife and i a customized strength routine that takes account of my back and my knees and stuff and so that's about 20 minutes so i do that back to back with the aerobics so i'll you know 20 minutes strength it's a very thorough routine it uses you know every muscle in my body with and it's right here in the house you know so i don't go to a gym it's have weights have a ball have a chin-up bar and go through that, and then I then I do 20 minutes uh, on the treadmill. And by the way, not running anymore. I can't run anymore, but uh, walking on an incline. Uh, and then uh, one day a week, uh, I have a rowing machine, uh, uh, which uh, which is really great. And by the way, the key to, to all that is music. Really, really good playlist. So with the strength, it's a lot about a vocal music, and with the with the uh, treadmill and the rowing machine, it's R and B. So Ooh. the music without the music, it would be very boring. Uh, but the music uh, is, is the key to making it fun and just have, have a terrific playlist. And so that really makes it possible. So basically we're talking about 40 minutes, you know, three, uh, three different times during the week. And that takes care of uh, pretty much everything. Beautiful. Oh, my goodness. This has been a master class. Um, any last words for the viewers or listeners of the show? Well, I think I think the the real work in education is going on in schools, and and it's you know t teachers do the, the the real real work, and principals uh, create a climate where that is possible. Protect teachers from nonsense from outside. Uh, appreciate their work, keep them in the game, and so the combination of teachers and principals, instructional coaches. Like my daughter, who's been teaching for 18 years, is just uh, just interviewing for a job as a as an instructional coach. So she would be a coach. Uh, in Boston, if she gets the job, she's going to hear in a couple of days. Our son teaches high school history. We're so proud of what our kids do. That's the, it's the real work in education. And I just, you know, the other thing is, is uh, for the people above them, the superintendents, the school boards, you know, the, the politicians, for them not to screw it up. Uh, because, you know, they've, they've done some pretty bad things over the last 20 years. For example, the whole thing of using test scores to evaluate teachers value-add calculations. That was a very ill-advised uh, initiative, and it has been discredited, and a few states are still hanging on to it, uh, but we got to get away from that. However, uh, Obama and Arnie Duncan, who, who started that whole business, were right in saying that it should. it's about student learning. You know, if, if, if they didn't learn it, you didn't teach it, uh, but they had the wrong approach of using test scores and calculations to evaluate teachers. The way to do it is the day-by-day -day work going into a classroom, looking over kids' shoulders, are they getting it, talking to the teacher afterwards, looking at the work, going to the teacher team meeting where they gave a common assessment to these fourth graders and looking, how, how did it go? And and again, that golden question, uh, Efrain, your kids did better than mine, what did you do? Tell me about the technique. 
your youth, uh, if you hear that question in a teacher team meeting or, or from a principal to a principal or from a superintendent to a superintendent, your kids are doing better than mine. What are you doing? Just constant curiosity about you know, what is really working because guess what? Some teachers are getting much better learning results than others and they're doing it every day. Some of the best teaching in the world is going on in some of our classrooms. And the opposite is true in, in some other classrooms. And so the job of the principal, structural coach, assistant principal, superintendent, assistant superintendent, is to, is to help amplify those good practices and gradually improve uh, those that are mediocre because the mediocre practices are, are harming kids and the poor practices too, of course. Amen. Uh, Kim, it has been a pleasure to have you in my show. It has been a pleasure talking to you. I hope this has helped to all of you out there in, in the field. Uh, we don't say good luck. We shouldn't say good luck in our field. We should say much. Would you say what? Can you say that again? Much success. Much success. Amen. And we leave you with that. Happy Saturday. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Eparim Martinez. Chulu. And as a production, chulu out. <laughs>